First Peter, First Peter chapter number one. First Peter chapter one. Who wrote the book of First Peter? Peter. How do we know Peter wrote the book of First Peter? Because he said so. That's right. Exactly right. I wanted to see if you were remembering last week. We're going to study the first First Peter, and uh, we're going to go through this book study. Last week was just an introduction to, to, to the book. They're suffering. They're suffering. Every, every single Christian is going to experience suffering. Every Christian. So if you're here this evening and you are saved, this book is for you. Now, who did Peter write specifically? Who did he write the book of 1 Peter to? Who did we learn last week? scattered Christians or strangers that were scattered abroad. Strangers. These were strangers for two reasons. Number one, they were strangers because they were Jews that were not in their homeland and they, they were scattered abroad, all of Asia Minor, and uh, uh, through different cities. And he mentions those cities and those areas where these Jews were. Now, these were professing Jews. These were believers in Jesus Christ. And so he is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians now, he's also, you say, well, I'm not Jewish, and so this book isn't for me. Also, as we look at the, uh, the, the strangers, they're strangers because now that they're saved, they're no longer uh, uh, citizens of this world. They're citizens of heaven. And so if you are saved, you're no longer a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. And so this book is written to you. Peter is specifically, uh, specifically going to go through this book and talk about the journeys of suffering. I asked you last week, how many of you have ever suffered in life? Anyone? Yeah. The reality is this. Every Christian's going to. If you haven't, you will. If you've been saved for any period of time, you've learned this. Suffering is a part of every Christian life. It's a part of life. And I want to um, uh, bring your attention to verse number six this evening. And, and uh, then I want to look at a few verses here and then go backwards a little bit. The Bible says in verse number six, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if, uh, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold and perisheth, uh, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I want you to see in verse number six, the verse begins with this word, wherein. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Now, in this, in this few verses here that we're going to see this evening, there's some, some words I want to point out. And first one this evening, I want you to see where he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. See that word greatly? This isn't just rejoicing. This is so that the Christian can greatly rejoice. How many of you want to greatly rejoice as a Christian? I know I do. I want to live that life where, as a Christian, if, if I know how a Christian can greatly rejoice, I want to know how to do that. And Peter is going to tell us here, he says, wherein? So what, what do we look at? We need to find out what he's talking about. He's saying, wherein the, you, you greatly rejoice, what is that wherein? 
You see, the Bible can say to you, rejoice. But if you don't know how or what to rejoice in, you know you're supposed to, but you don't know how to. You ever been put in a situation where you were supposed to do something, but you didn't know how to do it? You can suppose to all, your, all you want, but it doesn't mean you know how. Here, Peter is going to give the Christian the ingredients to be able to greatly rejoice as a child of God. Now, understanding this, through this book, we're going to talk about suffering, the journey of suffering. Every single Christian is going to go through suffering. But what Peter is going to lay out for us is this. While you're going through suffering, every single Christian can greatly rejoice. So through the most difficult suffering in your life, through the most difficult trial, through the most difficult temptation, through the most difficult burden you bear, you can, as a Christian, greatly rejoice. I believe every Christian ought to desire that. See, it isn't while I'm going through life and I'm, I'm saved, but boy, life is miserable. This isn't so that one day our joy is, well, when we get to heaven, I can greatly rejoice. What Peter is going to teach us as believers right here on this earth, as we're strangers, as we're journeying through this life, as we're journeying through trials, as we're journeying through sufferings, we can have great joy. We need to know how. He says this, wherein. And I want to look this evening. Peter brings us to our attention to verse number six. And I want to look at this. I want to look at settling our foundation. What is our foundation built upon? How many of you, you didn't sleep for a little bit last night while the wind was hitting your house? Anybody wonder if shingles were missing or? Yeah, we, I, was, I was laying there and listening to this wind and I thought, my goodness. What's going to be gone? What's going to be missing? How many of you, when you woke up this morning, your house was off your foundation? Anybody? How many of you are glad for that? <laughs> You'd have a problem. Your foundation didn't crumble last night, I hope, in the wind. The reason why winds can come and storms can come and, 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 and uh, the winds can blow is if your foundation is built... If your foundation is solid, you're not going to have a problem when the trials or the winds or the, the waves come. If the foundation isn't there, you've got a problem. And Peter, Peter is going to give us some things here that I want to I wanna look at tonight. And I, I pray that it's a help to you because realizing this, every single Christian is going to go through suffering. But you can have great joy. Peter says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. I want you to look in verse number three. So wherein, where do we find this? Going back up to verse number three, we find this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, you see those two words, abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I like in that verse, there's two, two, two words there I want you to, to look at. Abundant mercy, not just mercy, but abundant mercy. Not just hope, but lively hope. So Peter says this, 
Wherein, wherein, in verse number six, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Go back up to verse number three and we're going to find what he's talking about. How can I rejoice? My foundation must be established. My foundation must be firm. What am I building my life upon so that when I go through suffering, I can endure? Not just endure, but I can have great joy. I can re- greatly rejoice. We find the answer to that here in, in, in verse number three. And Peter says this, he uses this word, abundant mercy. Not just mercy, but abundant mercy. An overfilling of mercy. What is the definition of Mercy. Not getting what we do deserve, right? That's a, that's a great definition of, of, of mercy. Here's a little bit longer of a definition, but that's a great definition. Here's one, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it was within one's power to punish or harm. That's a long definition of it. The condensed one there is exactly right. This one here, though, think about this. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So thinking about mercy would be this. God has, it's within his power to to punish or harm. He he can look down upon the human race and say this, you've sinned and and you deserve, you deserve punishment. You deserve harm. You deserve punishment for that sin. And he would be right in doing that. But what mercy says this, instead of giving you what you do deserve, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you compassion and I'm going to forgive you when I have every right to punish you. That's mercy. So Peter's saying this in verse number six, wherein ye greatly rejoice. We go back to verse number three and we find wherein we can greatly rejoice. Or how can we greatly rejoice? We can greatly rejoice, Christian, because we have been given abundant mercy. None of us, none of us deserve what God is giving us. We deserve, what we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is harm coming to us because of our sinful nature, because of our sinful lifestyle, because we were born into this world with sin. We don't deserve compassion. We don't deserve forgiveness. What what Peter says is this, we have it abundantly through God. That ought to excite the believer. Abundant, mercy, a reminder of what we were saved from is abundant mercy. Think about it. I was saved. I deserve. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. But you, if you've trusted Christ by faith, according to verse number three, if you are a believer in Christ, you deserve it, but you're not going to get it. He's reminding us here in verse number three what we're saved from. Uh, I want you to uh, look at this definition as well um, of mercy performed out of a desire to relieve suffering motivated by compassion. That's what God, that describes mercy toward us performed out of a desire to relieve suffering. God's desire through salvation was to relieve suffering. Think about it. The worst suffering you could ever go through is to be separated from God for all of eternity. There's nothing else. 
There's nothing else that a human being for all of eternity to burn in hell, to, to, be the pay, to have to pay for their own sin, to be separated from God for all of eternity. There is no greater suffering that a person could go through. But this, performed out of a desire to relieve suffering, motivated by compassion. God was motivated by compassion to relieve mankind. Mankind does not have to go through the worst suffering that he would ever have to go through. I think of the story of the rich man. The Bible says this, when he died, he opened his eyes, being in torments. Just just begging for a, a drip of water to cool his tongue. He was in torments. The worst suffering that rich man has ever gone through and ever will go through for all of eternity now is separation from God. Those torments that he's in, burning in hell, that's the worst suffering he could go through. But God in his compassion says you don't have to suffer that. You don't have to suffer that. Verse number four, I want you to follow along with me. If you would be, the Bible says this, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, received in heaven for you. As we're building our foundation, as we're looking at what can cause me to greatly rejoice, I want to build that foundation in my life so that when the storms come, so when I go through sorrow, I can withstand, I can greatly rejoice even through trials. How does that happen? Number one, the foundation with salvation has to be secure. Number four, he reminds us that there is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away received in heaven for you. I have received a place in heaven. And I don't rejoice in that. This world is not my home. I am not. No matter what suffering I'm going through on this earth, it will end and it will get better. No matter what you're going through here on this earth, it's going to end. An unbeliever that's not saved, whatever suffering they're going through is better than what they will finally suffer if for all of eternity separated from God. But for the believer, you have heaven as your home. It's going to get better. This suffering is just temporary. I can greatly rejoice because the journey ends with an inheritance. I get something from God. How many of you have ever got an inheritance? I, I don't know if this counts as an inheritance or not, but when my dad, when my dad passed away, he, um, I got all of his tools. I got all of his books. I got all of his coins. I look at it as a profitable thing. Now, my wife looks at it like it just fills her garage up. Now, my dad, it, this year will be 10 years that he's passed away. And the truth is I have some totes of things that I haven't opened for 10 years. We've moved them, but we haven't opened them. And so I thought it would be neat to open up, find out some things. And I found this. There are some things I pulled out of those totes. They're rusty, and there's no value. My wife would say, throw it out, but it belongs to my, belonged to my dad, so I want to keep it. What he left me, I have totes of no value. I have books that smell like Books have been in storage for 10 years. You wouldn't want to read them. You'd probably get like mold spores if you tried to read those books. I know what you say, throw it out. It's too hard to throw out. The only thing that I 
am using in a value are the coins. And I'm not really using those. I've just got those kept in a secret place. So really the inheritance that I have, unfortunately, has added no value. It's cost us every time we moved. It's cost us frustrations of trying to open a car door or not because there's a tote that I don't need. You know, as I was reading through this, this, these verses and studying for this evening, I was thinking about the inheritance that my father has given me and it is rusty and it's not profitable. And when I leave, if I leave by death, my son is going to get an inheritance of unprofitable things. If we go by way of rapture, then I don't know who's going to get him. I don't care. But I know they're not going with me. That kind of makes me sad. The inheritance my father left me is of no value to me. That makes me sad. How do I have great joy, though, as a Christian? The inheritance I'm getting has great value. You know, the value of that inheritance, look with me in verse number four, it's inheritance incorruptible. It's never going to corrupt. It's undefiled. This is a perfect inheritance. I have something to look forward to. I can, I can receive a place in heaven. I can greatly rejoice because this journey ends with an inheritance. The value of my inheritance, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. This is going to be a wonderful inheritance. So as I am setting the foundation in my life, knowing this, as a Christian, every Christian is going to go through the journey of suffering, the mystery of suffering as we've entitled this series. Every Christian is going to suffer. How can I greatly rejoice in suffering? The foundation that I'm building my life upon, it must be firm so that when the storms come, as the journey goes, I must be able to endure. How do I do that? Number one, I, I am sure that I've received this abundant mercy, salvation. Number two, I can continue to realize this. I have a place in heaven. This is not my home. And when I get there, it's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. There aren't going to be things in heaven that we look at and we say, you know, I really don't like that. There's nothing in heaven that we're ever going to have to worry about or fret over or complain about or go and, and see that this has no value or no use to my life. There's not going to be, I said last week, all the doctors and nurses are going to be unemployed. Also, all the garbage men are going to be unemployed. There's going to be nothing you throw out. This is a perfect inheritance. There's, this is the foundation I start from. I start with salvation. I start with a proper understanding of salvation. It's not about my works. This is why it's so important for you to understand you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to merit your salvation. Jesus Christ has done it all. You can't merit salvation through good works. You can't earn it by being a good person. The only way a person is saved, they're saved because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. This is a proper understanding of salvation. I want you to see with me in verse number five, the Bible goes on to say this, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to see here this evening in setting this foundation for us to go through trials, I must understand that it's God that holds it all together. Have you ever tried to do something my wife's looking at me. We had an experience at our house last night. Have you ever tried to do something that you just 
weren't capable of doing. We had, um, my father-in-law came to our house and he's a, he does maintenance. And so when he comes to our house, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. He tries to fix everything. He tries to fix things that aren't always broken all the way yet. Do you ever try to fix something that's not broken all the way? And then he leaves and then it just gets worse. Well, I, we've been just busy and, and, I mean, just just unbelievably busy. I know some of you think a pastor just works on Sundays and Wednesdays. The truth is, they work every day, long hours. We've been busy, and Jacob was trying to do me a favor. He, the faucet at our, on, our, on our sink, the hot water wasn't coming out. Oh, and by the way, our house was built in the 70s, so preference that. So he thought he would take the water out, the, the faucet apart, fix whatever parts needed to be fixed. I'd come home, and it's one thing off my list. And I'd probably slip him a 20 and say, well done, son. His basketball game started at 5.30 last evening, and I was going to go watch it, and it was getting later and later and later. And my wife finally came in and said to me, she came in the office, and I could tell, do you ever get that look on your face like, what happened? I thought she was going to say the puppy is gone. So I was like, what happened? <laughs> so I'm excited. She's sad. And she said, don't get upset. Jacob tried to fix the faucet. I said, all right. There's water everywhere. He tried to turn it off on the bottom, but they, they didn't work. So water's just flying everywhere in our kitchen. My wife went down to try to help help turn the hot water or turn the water off, but she didn't realize the hot water where the water is by the water meter. She went to the gas line and she's turning the gas off to the <laughs> to everything, and it's not helping. I can just imagine this Three Stooges moment in my home. <laughs> she's turning the gas lines off. The water's still going. She's got the hot water off, the gas and that. There's no heat. There's no hot water. But the water is going everywhere in our house. Instead of calling me because she was afraid of what I would say, she calls her dad in Cincinnati. Where is this? And she's running through the house trying to figure out where the... Finally, they get the water off. Finally. And I just said to my wife and my son, what would make you think you're plumbers? Like what, what crossed your mind? Why would you think you could do such a thing? They won't ever do it again, I'll promise you that. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever tried to fix something in life that you had no business trying to fix? You know, a lot of times what happens, Christians, we go through sufferings in life. We go through trials in life. We go through difficulties in life. And this is the reality. You can't fix things that God can only fix. God never intended for us to go through life alone without him once we became a Christian. Trials are not, tr listen to this, trials are not God's way of, uh, of resisting us and pulling away from us. Trials and sufferings are God's way of getting us to draw close to him and depend upon him. It's not for us as we're going through life, not understanding what's going on, going through life, trying to figure out things on our own. God never intended the Christian to do that. He 
is powerful. We find here, look with me in this verse, we find this. The Bible says, uh, uh, let me see, in verse number five, who are kept by the power of God through faith. God is powerful. God holds us together. We are kept by the power of God. It's his power I can depend upon. We need to make sure that foundation is set. You get some kind of news, you get some kind of trial, you get some kind of uh, a situation you find yourself in, and the first thing we want to do is panic. The first thing we want to do is, is, is try to figure this out. The first thing we want to do is try to, try to find the valve and turn it off and find the wrong valve only to find more of a problem that we create. God holds it all together. You'll never experience a suffering Christian. You'll never go through a suffering. You'll never go through a trial. You'll never go through a situation in your life that God can't hold it all together. And that foundation has to be firm. So that when you find yourself suffering, you don't get the wrong idea. Know this, before the suffering starts, God can hold it together. Know this, after the suffering starts, God can hold it all together. It's by his power. Do you ever go through a situation where you think you're going to lose your mind? Do you ever do that? You know what you find? You can't hold your mind all together. You ever go through life where you situation, I'm just, this is out of control and I can't fix this. Good. You are at the place where now you must understand that only God can. Suffering. It's his power. We can depend upon him. I enjoy these, these words that, that Peter uses. Abundant mercy, lively hope, greatly rejoice. The foundation must be recognized. The foundation for the believer, it must be understood. It must be realized by the believer. I can't greatly rejoice in suffering if I don't understand. And these two things we must understand. You can't greatly rejoice in suffering if I don't understand what suffering I'm saved from. I can rejoice in any suffering knowing this. I'm saved from the worst suffering that could ever happen to me. And number two, I, I can't greatly rejoice in suffering if I don't understand what suffering produces in the life of the believer. Suffering produces something. Produces something in your life. In order for us to find that out, we must then understand something else here. This is this. I want you to see in verse number six, wherein we greatly rejoice. We see verse three, four, and five. Then, the, then Peter goes on to say this, though now for a season. We not only need to understand, make sure our foundation is established, we also need to understand something about time. Time. Have you ever said this, that God seems to always come through in the last hour, in the final hour? Who said it was the final hour? It's God's timing. Verse number six, he says this, though now for a season. I want you to uh, look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse number one. That's in the Old Testament. Turn there with me, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse number one. He talks about a season. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Bible says this, Ecclesiastes three, one, to everything there is a season. 
Verse goes on to say this, in a time to every purpose under the heaven. Boy, that is one of the verses I run too often. To everything, there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. You know, that means God has a timetable. God is the controller of time. Do we understand that? God's not bound by time. We are. He's the controller of time. You know, when, when the Israelites were at battle and, and, and they needed more time, you know what God did? He didn't say, well, rest, and I'll give you more time tomorrow. you got 24 hours tomorrow. You know what he said is, I'll make the sun stand still. So in Israel's battle, he gives them more time. He can do that because he's God. God can say, I want the sun to stay there and not move so that my people can continue to, to battle and fight. He can give time whatever he wants to because he controls time. He created time. Did you ever realize this? Before the creation of this world, God was, there was no bound, he was not bound to time. There was no evening and morning. There was no day. There was no 24-hour period. We find in, 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 um, Genesis 1, verses 4 and 5, we find this. He established time, the evening and the morning were the first day. We as human beings, we're bound to time. There's 24 hours in our day. There's an evening and there's a morning. We're bound to time. God is not bound to time. We look at suffering through time. We look at suffering through how long. We look at suffering to how long we have to endure this. To God, there is no time. He doesn't see it the way we see it. He doesn't see it through human eyes. And the believer must understand that time is set by God, not set by us. So when we see suffering and we see the time frame, we believe as Christians this, the best way, the, the best way in dealing with suffering, God, is the shortest amount of time. So if you're going to make suffering, please make it a short amount of time. The shorter, the better. But God's not bound by time. God doesn't see it that way. God's after something. And we might see it as how much longer can I go through the suffering? How much longer can I endure this trial? Or where God always comes, comes through at the, the final hour or the 11th hour. But in God's timetable, he came through exactly when he desired to come through. He's not bound by our time. God uses time to set in order human events, but God is not limited to time. So when we see this where it says, though now for a season, we must realize this, it's God that sets that season, not us. I want you to see thirdly this evening is this, the journey has a purpose. And I want you to see three words here in verse number six. Though now for a season, then look at these three words, if need be. See that? If need be, the journey has purpose, wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. There's a purpose. The Christian that endures and goes through a journey of suffering, it's not by mistake. There is a design and a plan. God has a desire, a plan for our life. And if need be, we will get there through suffering. And see, Christian, this is where we have to understand. God understands and knows our life better than we know. 
If I designed my life, I would design it with zero suffering involved. That's how I do that. Would anybody do it their life any different? The easier the better. Zero suffering, zero pain, zero trials. God understands this about us. In order for him to get us to where we need to be, it's going to require suffering. If needs be. He's going to bring us to the place. And on that journey, it has purpose. There is a need. There is a need be for every sorrow that Christian is called upon to endure. Every desire, every trial you go through, every suffering you go through, there is a need to be. God is after something. That suffering is not by mistake. That suffering is not because God neglected you. That suffering is not because God woke up and he was so busy with someone else that he didn't have time to, to, to be involved in your life. There is a needs be. God is doing something in your life through that suffering. It's important. See, what I believe that Peter is trying to show us to understand in the beginning here of this book, before we get into that journey, we need to understand there's value to that journey. Now, I don't like that. You don't like that because that means suffering. That means we have to go through something. We have to endure something. But we need to understand, Christian, there is something God is after in every sorrow in our life. God doesn't make mistakes. We need to be sure that we don't waste opportunities because of the sorrow of the journey. Don't waste opportunities because of the sorrow of the journey. What I believe we have to understand, Christian, is this. As we're going through the journey, don't concentrate on the sorrow. Concentrate on the God of the journey. Realizing this, that the greatest, the greatest suffering I'm never going to endure. I've got a home in heaven. God is in control. And so through this journey of suffering, instead of, instead of dwelling on the suffering, dwell upon what God wants me to, to get through this journey. And if he has to use suffering to get me there, I've got to keep my focus on him, not the suffering, if needs be. Let me ask you this question, Christian, tonight. Are you willing to trust the wisdom of God and to allow him to plan our lives as he sees fit? Think about that question. Are you willing to trust the wisdom of God and to allow him to plan our lives as he sees fit? When I resist God, when I resist or question, what I'm doing is saying to God, I don't trust your wisdom in my life. Are you willing to trust God's wisdom? Are you willing to say, God, you know what's best? Are you willing to say, God, I'll go through this knowing you know what's best. I'll trust your wisdom through this. Are you willing to do that? I want you to see in verse number seven, the Bible says this, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Gold is valuable, isn't it? Is there anything more valuable than gold, brother? Nothing is. Gold is the most valuable thing. He sells gold, so of course he's going to tell me that. 
How many of you would like some more gold? How many of you like just some gold? <laughs> you get more. You just want some. Yeah. It's valuable. How many of you ladies would like gold on your ring? Or plastic, would that be fine? Huh? Or just some kind of hard metal? No, you want gold. Gold's valuable. Gold's precious. Gold is to be desired. There's probably not too many people that say, here, here's a lot of gold. Take it. I want you to have it. There are many people that says, I want to acquire more. The Bible says here that that, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. The trial of your faith is more precious than gold. Your faith will be exposed to trials. That's a trial of your faith. He said our journeys of suffering eventually or actually indicates God's deep interest and concern for us. Think about that. Our journey of suffering, it actually indicates God's interest, his deep interest in concern for us. He allows us to go through suffering because he's interested in our life. He's not interested in us just living life how are we going to live it. He's not interested in us going through life uh, uh, without his blessing, without his, his leading. He's not interested in us going through life on our own understanding. He's not interested in that. He's so interested in our life that he's going to allow us to go through suffering so that we can understand him greater. Just as gold is tried in the fire, in order to separate it from the, what is, what is it separated from in fire? Just the other impurities. Is there a name for that? What is it? Dross. So gold is put in fire and burned. So the dross is separated. And the more the dross that is separated, the better the gold is. And God says that your suffering is better than that. The trial of your faith. Because what happens is that trial of your faith, it puts you through the fire. And the more the fire you're in, the more that God can get the impurities out. The more that he gets that, that, that garbage out, and, and, and the more you become what he desires for you to become. There is a level that a Christian must uh, uh, get to that only comes through suffering. Because that suffering is like fire. So faith, faith which is more precious than gold, it must be tested in order that it may be found under praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He uses this word precious. And we'll see this word precious throughout 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 7, he uses it, precious trial of your faith. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 7, he uses the word precious as the living stone. In 2 Peter 1, 1, he uses this word precious as precious faith. And in 2 Peter 1, 4, he uses the same word precious, precious promise. That the word precious means of great value, not to be wasted or treated carelessly. You know what God is saying? You're precious. 
you have great value. He doesn't treat us carelessly or wasted. He doesn't desire for a wasted life. He wants us to be precious. Do you appreciate all the, these precious things enough to suffer for them if God calls you to do so? If God calls you to suffer, Do you desire these precious things from God enough to say, God, I'm willing to suffer for them. I'm willing to suffer so that I become what you desire for me to become. Are we ready to suffer for the sake of our beloved Lord? Are you willing to suffer? As I think about this verse, that the trial of your faith bringing much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Gold eventually is going to go away, but the trial of your faith is more precious than that. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And just as gold is purified by fire, that it consumes the, the garbage, it consumes the impurities, God uses trials and sufferings to separate the believer from those things that hinder our fellowship with him. You see, Christian, God is going to use suffering in our, in our life to bring us to him. It gets the impurities out so that we can fellowship greater with him. Are you, are you willing to go through this trial, maybe to go through this suffering So that God can work and the fellowship with God can be greater and there can be spiritual growth in your life. I believe this for some Christians. Their place of stopping to grow spiritual, spiritually, the place where if they were to evaluate their life, where did I stop growing? Where did I stop in fellowship with the Lord? Where was that time in my life where I hit the roadblock? For some, it might be the resistance to the suffering. God wanted to do something in your life. He's going to use suffering to perform it. And instead of accepting it, instead of being sure the foundation was sure, instead of knowing that God was going to get me through this, instead of knowing that this is what every Christian is going to go through and God is going to perfect me through it, and this, this, this trial of my faith is more precious than gold. God is after something. Instead of letting him have his work through it, we resist it. That becomes the place where you stop growing spiritually. Many people stop growing spiritually when conflict comes. God can use conflict to grow you spiritually because you have to rely upon him. God can use suffering and sickness and pain and trials. God can use what we think is a ruin to grow us spiritually. But we've got to see it the way he sees it. We've got to understand it the way he desires for us to understand it so that we can grow through it. And as we grow through suffering, I get to fellowship with God at a greater level. And I become what God is molding me to become. Don't resist the journey of suffering.
Look for God in it and let him refine you.